I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. We're really excited because we're welcoming back to the program Dr. Matt Matt Moody, the lead researcher on the Amnesty International report about facial recognition tech in Palestine, automated apartheid. So thank you so much um, for being here with us today. And congratulations, since we last spoke, you've become a doctor, officially got your PhD. Um, So, so happy to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. And and what a great, I mean, I was here when you inaugurated my PhD submission and now I'm here after that. And yeah, what a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> before and after. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I can't remember that you were just finishing up. So that was a similarly <laughs> hectic time to agree to go onto this podcast. So thank you again. <laughs> Maybe we'll start. I mean, so this this report has been out, I think, for a few months at this point, um, and it's been featured widely in The New York Times um, about uh, the impact of facial recognition technology um, in Palestine. Um, And so I wonder maybe we could just, you know, give a little bit of background about the report, your role in it, the origin of of this and maybe kind of um, uh, the beginning of, of the findings for those who haven't come across it yet. Sure. Um, Yeah. Okay. So I uh, worked together with our Middle East and North Africa regional office. So I'm at Amnesty Tech uh, on producing this report, which takes a point of departure in an earlier report that we'd done on the situation in uh, Israel-Palestine and in particular the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, drawing on international law to effectively identify the situation as tantamount to the international crime of apartheid. Um, And under the international crime of apartheid, there are a number of inhumane acts that have to occur in order for that crime to be relevant, um, one of which includes fragmentation, uh, heavy and arbitrary restrictions on the freedom of movement, um, uh, sort of obstructions to access to medical care and obstructions to family life and reunification. There's a huge list of factors. And part of what we became interested in as a a sort of a next stage in our work on facial recognition globally was the ways in which AI-driven surveillance in particular was being used to augment and exacerbate aspects of those inhuman acts um, in the context of the occupied Palestinian territories. And so working together with my colleagues across our regional office and with local organizations that have been working on this issue, um, including uh, a whistleblower organization known as Break Into Silence, which consists of uh, former Israeli security forces um, who uh, have 
spoken openly against the system and are providing crucial testimony around how a lot of the tools of repression are being used and deployed, we're able to sort of glean some of the architecture of surveillance and oppression in the uh, along the digital domain um, that is being used to automate, as it were, apartheid. And so the report focuses on the ways in which facial recognition is reinforcing aspects of apartheid in the OPT. We pay particular attention to the ways in which restrictions on freedom of movement are being uh, reinforced as well as the ways in which this coercive environment, which exists in Palestine, uh, which is intended to force Palestinians out of areas of key strategic interest to Israeli authorities and uh, illegal settlers, um, is being uh, exacerbated and cemented through the use of facial recognition surveillance. Um, we pay attention to the ways in which this is happening in Hebron, which has largely been slated as a smart city initiative where Israeli security forces are experimenting with various AI tools. Um, there have been several iterations of different facial, recogn uh, facial recognition technologies that have been tried and tested in this area. Um, most recently, as we reveal um, within the report uh, at the checkpoints, so really being used in a way of algorithmically governing how Palestinians get to access um, things as basic as access to medical care, work, um, education, etc. And then looking at East Jerusalem as well, which was important because Jerusalem is often situated as sort of a, a tourist site, um, as a holy city, uh, as a place in which you may sort of not be aware of the, the creeping ways in which an illegal and internationally recognized illegal annexation has been ongoing, um, and in which surveillance in particular um, following the uh, aftermath of the evictions of Sheikh Jarrah in 2021 uh, has been playing a key part in the ways in which both illegal settlers have been occupying uh, aspects and an annexing aspects of um, of areas uh, that, that are predominantly and historically homed by um, two Palestinians. Uh, using surveillance in combination with Israeli security forces doing the same, and really crushing any form of um, social life and access to safe exercise of, of the right to protest, for example. So I wonder if maybe you could give us just kind of uh, an overview of like the technological aspects of, of how this system is set up. I mean, we often think of like facial rec um, as this kind of um, um, like unmoving cameras mounted on walls with CCTV footage. But one of the really interesting to come up things to come up in your report is how soldiers, you know, you call it a gamified system and how this this is really individuals taking photos. Um, and so maybe you could talk about how technologically these systems and facial rec um, is, is being set up, what it means to, to be gamified. Um, and I, the other thing I found really interesting, you may or may not know this, is that all of these systems had wolves in their name. And if there was some uh -huh. significance to why <laughs> wolf pack and red wolf and blue wolf is, is what they're called. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So let's start from the top there in Hebron. Uh, we revealed this latest, uh, facial recognition system known as red wolf, which is really just the most recent, uh, iteration of a slew of facial recognition tools that have been deployed in Hebron under the smart city banner. It includes apps, other apps, uh, such as blue wolf, uh, as well as a previous much older surveillance registry known as Wolfpack. 
in addition to a settler surveillance system known as White Wolf. Um, and sort of with Red Wolf, Israeli authorities have really taken the worst possible dystopian fantasies, the idea of sort of an augmented system that controls and dominates Palestinians and, and made a reality out of it. Um, what, what we're dealing with here is first and foremost, the I'm, I'm, I'll go in sort of order of chronology here. So with the Wolfpack system, we have this analog database where if, say, an uh, Israeli soldier was uh, stopping a Palestinian, they would call up on the radio, somebody in an operations room would uh, provide the detail on the individual that they that they detained. Um, now enter Blue Wolf, the Blue Wolf system, which was originally exposed in November 2021 by Elizabeth Dwoskin of the Washington Post. Um, it's basically an app where Israeli soldiers who were already conducting what they call intelligent mapping raids, which were basically raids on unsuspecting families and homes, sometimes in the middle of the night where they were being lined up, uh, information was being gathered about who lives in the household and what the household looks like from inside, just in case. Um, and the Blue Wolf uh, app basically emboldened that to an extent where Israeli soldiers were now tasked with going out and capturing as many Palestinian faces in Hebron as possible in order to feed this big database of as many uh, facial images of Palestinian faces, uh, matching them with other credentials and information, such as you know property that they may hold or vehicles that they may be riding around, so pictures of those two, and putting them in conversation with other information on Palestinians that they already held within, say, the Wolfpack database, such that in future, uh, Israeli soldier could just hold their phone up to the Palestinian face and get all the information they, they need. Um, what's crucial to understand with how this played out is that military units were incentivized uh, by way of a scoreboard on the Blue Wolf app, where the Blue Wolf app would tell you which military unit had the most amount of facial captures per week. And the unit with the most amount of captures would receive gift cards, uh, would be given holidays, um, various other incentives to continue uh, doing the quote unquote good work. With the Red Wolf system, we have the same sort of dynamics of the Blue Wolf system, and, and we believe highly likely to be plugging into the same database, but it's being deployed instead at the checkpoint. Now, why this matters is because the checkpoint itself is a hindrance towards Palestinians' ability to exercise their most basic rights and services. So to illustrate this, Hebron is divided into H2 and H1. Uh, H2 is under the administration uh, of the uh, Ministry of Defense. Um, and it's uh, basically consisting of some 33,000 Palestinians and about 800 uh, Israeli settlers, illegal Israeli settlers. Um, and checkpoints have been installed in and around H2 uh, and H1, separating H2 from H1 uh, checkpoints that are geared specifically towards Palestinians only. So Israeli Jewish settlers are not supposed to take them. They can go about their business moving freely uh, within the areas as they please. But Palestinians have to go through them. And here's the kicker. You need to get out of H2 oftentimes in order to be able to access work, housing, medical care, education. Um, there was a thriving community, a thriving business community, access to education, medical care within H2 previously 
Shahada Street, which is one of the streets that has been segregated from the rest of Hebron, was previously thriving, but has since then been cut off um, from any aspect of social life and, and business. Um, and these checkpoints essentially make it impossible for Palestinians to move um, anywhere without being controlled by, by soldiers. So Red Wolf comes into play here because it's being deployed at these checkpoints under the auspices of creating frictionless uh, segregation, as it were, where now Palestinians have to contend with an algorithm recognizing them as they cross the checkpoint um, in order for them to be able to, to go through and go about their business. Crucially, though, the system captures uh, the system captures your face before you enter this turnstile, and it looks for you on a database uh, that has been collected and produced without your knowledge and consent. Um, if you're not identified, either because you aren't registered or because the algorithm simply doesn't recognize you, and as we know, facial recognition algorithms are profoundly poor, um, you will be held, the checkpoint will be closed, you may be questioned, you may be detained, there may be all sorts of information that's kept on you uh, about why you should be apprehended by a soldier. And where previously you might have had a social relationship with an individual soldier who might have out of just knowing you let you pass, now he's relying on the computer. Uh, and the computer says, you know, stop, and gives you a red signal. And so you're not going to let this person pass. Um, and oftentimes we have reports from Palestinians speaking about how the soldier would know their name, even though they've never met them because this facial recognition was spewing out all of the, the information on them that they didn't know how these soldiers had access to. So that's how we first started to learn about the system, which again, is exacerbating an already pretty obstructive environment for Palestinians to realize any modicum of, of their rights. Yeah, that was such a striking anecdote in the report about um, an individual that that you had spoken to or or had explained that they were just walking about the street and how chilling it is if just a soldier comes up and says hello to, to your name and you've never met them before. And it's such a display of power in a subtle way, just very quietly of being of, of kind of nodding to, to this um, technical and violent um, system. Um, so I wonder then maybe you could talk a little bit about how has this impacted um, Palestinians experiencing the system? I mean, so so there was, um, you know, as you've talked about, the, this has impacted movement communities. Um, another thing is, you know, these you, that you talked about in the report that these cameras can often see into people's homes. Um, what what has the impact been on on people? Well. So turning back to some of the testimonies that we were able to access from soldiers themselves via breaking the silence, the, the sort of line of reasoning, of strategic reasoning is uh, we're carrying out this form of conduct in an effort to make our presence felt. So it's fairly clear uh, that there is an attempt at making the presence of the occupation felt, of course, in the context of of Hebron, it's a prolonged occupation, which is creeping into de facto annexation by virtue of Israeli security forces um, that are only reinforcing their presence uh, through the permanence of checkpoints and through the, um, of course, erection of further modes of AI-driven surveillance. Um, and so really, the major effect is to say, you know, we're not going anywhere. Uh, you have to deal with us every day. And what we're hearing from Palestinians themselves is indeed 
where previously they might have had, you know, notional forms of privacy at home. They're now finding themselves in situations in which, in fact, one one witness spoke about how they wouldn't normally cover with the hijab at home, but because of the cameras turning towards them, they were now doing that. Um, a few other individuals spoke about how uh, ever since um, one particular individual spoke about how ever since their their husband had passed, uh, they had become particularly aware of how uh, in 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 sort of tandem with their Israeli settler neighbor, as it were, uh, harassing them and wanting to force them out of their home, the camera infrastructures that were operated by Israeli security forces also turning towards them. And so they'd started barricading to the extent possible um, their windows as well with more than just curtains to avoid both the stone throwing and the surveillance gaze of the occupying state. Um, we had incidents uh, uh, related that, that, that we sort of learned about through through our interviews with people who live in Salwan, which is an area of East Jerusalem, um, where folks have been resisting surveillance towers in particular, which have these larger and, and, and I should say multiple um, pan, tilt and zoom cameras, as well as bullet cameras attached to them, which are operated by Israeli police. Uh, they try to, um, a few community members have tried to sort of resist by um, setting fire to the to the surveillance tower. And I should say under international law, certainly it's completely within reason to uh, resist surveillance by a, a, a force that is illegally annexing your territory. Um, so, you know, even if the state of Israel comes forward with sort of a security justification that, oh, they're ensuring the security of their settlers in the area, well, they have no business being there in the first place. East Jerusalem is an illegally annexed territory. But these individuals had, um, had burned the surveillance tower and ever since then, the number of uh, surveillance cameras in the area by settler homes, as well as the number of towers had increased. And they were noticing how more and more folks who were coming out in protest were being arrested. And so the simple act of, of visiting your, your uncle or, or your cousin just down the road uh, now included the calculus of, am I going to be caught by one of these cameras and will I be turned in um, and associated with this particular form of resistance, even though I'm well within my internationally guaranteed rights, quote unquote, uh, to carry out the kind of resistance that that I am. Another final witness sort of spoke to how these forms of apartheid augmenting surveillance had eroded any aspect of social life for Palestinians. Yeah, it was really striking about how these these camera systems can be used to just really push people and make people uncomfortable in social places that are then, um, as you say, just kind of erodes the, the social and even economic life of certain areas. Um, I wonder, so in, in the report, you say that Palestinians are the only, I think it's the ethnic group that's subjected to this. Um, and I wonder, could you talk a little bit about why that is and how that happens? Is it because of where these are deployed? They're only deployed at checkpoints. Are Israeli settlers or others being captured on these systems, but just not being scanned? Or they are being, or are they being scanned? Is that is that um, 
uh, facial recognition system, systems working on them, but it's just not being tied to any other sort of identifying or like say police or uh, military force. Um, and and but does the potential for that system to be expanded to other racial groups um, exist? Yeah. So importantly, all of the so I should maybe going back to your earlier question that. I didn't address the first time around. Anecdotally, one of the things that we learned, and again, we don't, I, I hesitate to, to give this answer because there are many different answers to why why this is, but, but one anecdote is that they're referred to as the blue wolf and red wolf and wolf pack and white wolf systems because they're supposed to reveal the wolf in sheep's clothing, um, which is referring explicitly to Palestinians because one app that I didn't mention is, of course, the White Wolf system, which is deployed uh, for settlers who then use an app to verify whether a particular Palestinian is allowed to come through their settlement or has a permission to work on their settlement. Um, and we believe that they have access through that app to um, to as sort of a aspects of the information that's kept within the Blue Wolf database, which is which is created by Israeli security forces. So really there is, it's not completely clear where the line between illegal settler who has you know access to potentially military-grade information and the Israeli security forces um, is. It, it's increasingly blurred for Palestinians. And so, you know, just knowing that these tools were only creating and um, creating entries on Palestinians for the purposes of of protecting Israeli settlers from Palestinians being deployed predominantly at checkpoints that are only frequented by Palestinians. It's fairly clear that there is that discriminatory aspect that that is intended to dominate um, to dominate Palestinians. And it's again embedded in a context that that we recognize as as apartheid, where you know, there is there is one, as it were, legal system uh, that applies to Palestinians and another one that applies to Israelis where, you know, Israeli citizens can seek reparations and possible claims under constitutional provisions. Uh, for example, if they were to find themselves subject to facial recognition systems, Palestinians are are governed under under military law. They have no such claims on the state of Israel. But the state of Israel as, a, as an occupation, as an occupying force, deploys these systems asymmetrically against Palestinians who have no way of resisting them, really. So as far as the, the wolf tools go, again, only geared towards Palestinians. Of course, it's very difficult to say with you know no ambiguity that surveillance present in East Jerusalem isn't also capturing the faces of Israeli nationals or tourists or what have you. But what's clear to us is that there has been a, uh, a ramping up of the where these camera devices are concentrated. So you may have heard of the uh, protests that followed the eviction of some seven families of Sheikh Jirah in 2021. Uh, those seven families uh, saw a, a number of protests come out in support of them globally, but also locally. And as a result, Israeli security forces, Israeli police deployed CCTV in areas that are of particular significance to Palestinian communities. So in and around Sheikh Jarrah, in and around Damascus Gate, which is the entrance that takes you up to 
towards Al-Aqsa through the old city of East Jerusalem, uh, in and around Al-Aqsa Mosque, and in and around Silvine. Again, all areas that are considered Palestinian. Um, and as we've seen, in particular in areas like Silwan, where illegal settlements have been increasing in particularly sort of violent fashion over the last couple of years, under the auspices of expanding a biblical excavation site, um, we've seen the number of cameras in those areas also increase, and in turn, Palestinians feeling less safe, as mentioned, to exercise uh, resistance. In fact, there are two companies that seem to be uh, uh, having the most amount of devices in the area, we identified TKH Security, which is a, uh, a surveillance manufacturer domiciled in the Netherlands, and then Hike Vision, which is a, a surveillance manufacturer domiciled in China. In particular, Hike Vision cameras seem to be rife and used by both security forces and by settlers in areas like Silwan. So if you go to Silwan and you see surveillance cameras pointing out from the middle towards Palestinian homes, and then surveillance cameras pointing down towards Palestinian homes from settlers who are forming a concentric circle around Palestinian homes. It's very hard to come away and sort of nuance that with a, oh, you know, Israeli settlers are probably also being captured on these devices because, of course, Israeli settlers have recourse under Israeli law to seek, um, you know, their privacy rights, whereas Palestinians don't. And Palestinians are the ones that are being picked up from the street by Israeli security forces. And whenever an incident related to quote unquote terrorism, as it pertains to Palestinians, is carried out, there's ample footage apparently to demonstrate evidence of said terrorism. But magically, said evidence disappears when it comes to violence against Palestinians in the same areas. I mean, that's that's really surprising to me that. The, you always think of security forces as having access or state forces having access to databases, but you don't think about your your neighbors, quote unquote, having access to military grade information. I wonder, I want to come back to the companies later in the conversation because that seems really key. But I wonder, so, the, so you mentioned the databases that are being um, compiled. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wondered if, if it is known. Um, can these, how, how far can these databases be accessed? Um, is this something that's internal to state security forces that's that's being shared across, say, a variety of state or, or government offices? Um, and, or, you know, you mentioned that these two companies are involved. How widely accessible um, are, are these databases, particularly if, <laughs> you know, through an app, uh, settlers themselves are able to access some of this information? We don't know. We um, we know about the existence of the tools because of the testimonies of Palestinians who have experienced it on their own bodies and because of the testimonies given by Israeli soldiers. We know that there is a very high likelihood that products that are capable of, of networked video surveillance would be plugging into systems such as the Mabat 2000, which is the system of of video surveillance and facial recognition that exists in East Jerusalem. But beyond that, it's very hard to establish what companies would have been involved in the production of the, of the software. And of course, it's tempting to then assume that the technology was developed in-house by Israeli security forces, by the Ministry of 
of defense, but it's incredibly hard to say. And of course, Israeli authorities have not been forthcoming on information related to uh, the use of these tools, the development of these tools, the sales of these tools. Um, we now know, of course, that there are a number of surveillance uh, manufacturers that are associated with the state of Israel and have been domiciled in them and have since exported their tools outwards. Um, of course, Pegasus uh, by NSO Group is one such. Um, but there are other companies as well that are in the AI analytics space that are in the you know surveillance uh, AI driven surveillance space that have also gone outwards in particular now um, going into the US market I won't mention any names um and so it wouldn't be surprising and we should be wary that the same tools that are used to restrict the freedom of movement of a racialized group in the occupied Palestinian territories of Palestinians could be used to restrict the freedom of movement of anyone um, at a future date. You could be finding yourself at the behest of, of a security um, personnel in the United Kingdom who is whipping up their phone and looking for at your face and telling you that you can't be at this particular protest or you can't be in this particular area because they have some information on you that ties you to a you know high risk of dissent or high risk of quote unquote terrorism or what have you. It is it isn't inconceivable that the same technologies we're seeing used and developed in the context of the Palestinian laboratory, which is how we we need to think about it, um, would land elsewhere. And we have to think about it as truly, you know, and certainly in my experience as a researcher on facial recognition. I've seen facial recognition used to stifle protests. I've seen it used um, to target Black Lives Matter protesters. I've seen it create less safe spaces, uh, in particular in public housing, where, where, where folks are finding themselves, of course, trapped by the fact that they're potentially in a virtual lineup every time that they enter their homes. But to see the ways in which it's literally creating entrapments around racialized communities who, who can't move out of a certain space, all depending on whether an algorithm decides to side with them that day or not. That's that's the most grotesque version of the application of this system that I've ever come across. Um, and if it's possible there, it's possible anywhere. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, because just to to pull out, you've 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 not centered, but you focused on facial recognition technology in this report in a way. And I wonder, you know, London, where you're located, is often talked about being like the most CCTV place in the world. Um, and, and as you were talking about, right, like we're really used to having cameras everywhere from Amazon Ring being used to police Black Lives Matter to several protests, you know, um, these surveillance apparatuses um seem to exist in in so many spaces so i wonder for you um kind of two questions one is um do you think facial recognition tech adds anything different to cctv is it that that was always kind of they knew that this was going to happen and so these these systems are always being set up with a mind to the fact that we'll be able to identify people or is this kind of a new dynamic from simply surveillance where they can't necessarily scan your face and track you to a database um 
And then um, in terms of thinking about, um, as you said, about, you know, Palestine as a laboratory for exporting this very oppressive technology, um, is there something about um, these systems that are being developed that are particularly distinct from, say, Amazon Ring or, or you know, like, is the software so different um, or, 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 you know, are they basically, do they basically have the same, same capabilities? Okay, great questions. Um, let me start with your first one. So is this adding new layers of sophistication to things like CCTV? Um, the important takeaway from both this research as well as other ongoing research, and in fact, ongoing debates as well within, for example, the context of the EU AI Act, is that most cities are actually just one software upgrade away from ubiquitous uh, facial recognition capabilities because older CCTV infrastructures can be repurposed simply with the use of software for facial recognition. Importantly, there is a uh, distinction to be made here between two forms of facial recognition. One of them is live facial recognition, which we know has been used by, for example, the Metropolitan Police here in the UK, um, uh, and retrospective facial recognition. Importantly, the rights violations uh, associated with both of them are more or less the same. Uh, we're, we're talking about still a, an infringement of your, your right to privacy because they depend on a reference database of your facial imagery, which has been collected and scraped usually without your knowledge and consent. Um, and then also if, say, a reference piece of footage or imagery was used from a public space in which other people were featured, of course, they're also subjected to an arbitrary virtual lineup, which also breaks with their right to privacy. And so because the technology by design depends on mass surveillance, it's incompatible with that right. And then as, as far as the equality and non-discrimination angle goes, we know that these tools have inherent technical biases. They're trained on flawed data sets, which means that they're biased towards black and brown people, often leading to things like false arrests, as we've seen in the context of Detroit and New Jersey. Um, however, even say if you could get the facial recognition algorithm to be 99% accurate, you're still dealing with technologies that are largely deployed around areas that have more community members that are um, uh, 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 people of color than around neighborhoods that are white. So, uh, and oftentimes they're deployed at the same rate against the same people around the same patterns of say, um, stop and frisk policing. So the same people and the same communities that are subject to racist um, stop and frisk discriminatory forms of policing are also subject to facial recognition. So again, it's not compatible with our right to equality and non-discrimination. And then finally, there is the question around the right to protest, which irrespective of whether the facial recognition runs live or whether the footage is used after the fact to identify protesters, there's still a chilling effect, right? Like as a protester, you may not be as likely to participate in a protest freely, at least not without having to take considerable precautions, uh, uh, such as obscuring your face, wearing a face mask, wearing sunglasses, what have you, dressing up in a T-Rex suit. I've seen all of it. Um, and and without doing that, you're not safe. You're not you're not safe from 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 being surveilled and from being able to exercise your your right freely. And so, you know, irrespective of whether it's live 
whether it's where whether it's retrospective, you're still subject to the same um, rights violation. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's it's not so much that it's not it's not so much that we are witnessing a fundamentally different use of facial recognition in the context of the OPT. It's that we're seeing infrastructures that are already in place with some additional infrastructure, such as the apps, uh, being utilized to their most violent ends. And all I'm I'm saying that to animate how the same infrastructure that is in place in, say, London could be used towards exactly the same ends as we're seeing facial recognition being used in the OPT. All you would need is a few more blockades to act as the checkpoints. I mean, I know the City of London Corporation have a, a couple of those around particular spots um, and a facial recognition software, which we know has been used before in this country's context. So that's for your first question. Your second question, facial recognition, whether it's using live or retrospective, uses often similar cameras that are used for CCTV. If it's live, they are usually slightly more, slightly newer and are slightly more sophisticated. If it's retrospective, they can usually use CCTV cameras from the last 10 years, frankly, uh, and just with a software upgrade, as it were, they could run facial recognition on any footage collected through those CCTV cameras. Yeah. And it seems to me what you're saying too about retrospective stuff, um, retrospective analysis seems like very clearly right for abuse in this country where the protest bill has provisions around if you have previously protested. Um, exactly. uh, just to add as well about facial rec to leave your phones at home. If you're going to <laughs> um, you heard yes. it here first, kids. Yeah. Um, so you, you kind of touched on this in a few of your answers, but I wanted to ask you explicitly about it, which is about, you know, does facial recognition technology work? And so obviously a lot of the reports we hear here say about like even something kind of mundane, like Uber having, you know, facial rec for its drivers to be able to log in and verify your identity obviously works worse for people who are not white, for people who do not fit the gender binary. Um and that, you know, this can be used to exclude people um, fr from accessing systems that they want to access, um, but also that it can be used to misidentify people. So a lot of reports, right, in the U.S. say about, like, police showing up at normally it's a black man's house and they're like, hey, we linked you to all these crimes. And it turns out facial recognition technician technology, as you said, didn't work. So I wonder, um, one... It, you know, is this the case as well? I, I mean, and and is, do you know, I mean, is there access to that information about whether in Palestine is this facial recognition technology somehow so much better than everything else? Um, and if it is or is not working, how does, you know, is it, wh where is the harm in that? Because it seems like if it does, sometimes if it doesn't identify you, you're harmed. And if it misidentifies you, you're also harmed. So where does the fact that it doesn't work um, play into to harms, if that makes sense. Mm, of course, yeah. So I think, so I think, by and large, we have to operate under the assumption that it it doesn't work in the immediate short run, but that it still leads to harm, but that it is likely to work really well in future, but that it would still lead to harm. And under that assumption, of course, we still have to, from my perspective, regulate the shit out of it and ban it. Um, 
and as far as as far as the sort of the the snake oil dimension of facial recognition is concerned, like oftentimes you'll have, and this this goes actually to the core of how the economy around a lot of AI works, as as your listener will probably probably know very well. It's sort of like they'll make bull claims about aspects of characteristics of people that they'll be able to extrapolate simply by having footage of them. Um, this goes to, for example, things like gender recognition, race detection, emotion recognition, uh, anomaly detection, what have you. Um, I was incidentally at a uh, symposium that was hosted by IPVM in in, in New York uh, a little while ago, in which they put a lot of the these systems under the microscope and test what they can actually do. It's very funny when you find out that some of the most advanced or so-called advanced systems of facial recognition see gender as, you know, just along the metrics as a, as a, as a function of hair length and height, um, which I'm not even going to get into the debate of how like problematic that is, but also it kind of blows gender up in a sort of a really interesting way from a, from an academic perspective, from an intellectual perspective, like, okay, well, if gender doesn't matter in terms of hair length and in height, and if that's all the computer sees, then, you know, does it matter? Um, and, and I guess the computer says no, but, uh, <laughs> Butler is like, I see that AI has been reading my work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's super fascinating to, to see those sort of glitches of, of like things that don't work in binary attempting to be translated into the binary. Uh, and so those claims, you know, the claims of gender recognition of emotion recognition, not only are they based on sort of phrenological assumptions, of how humans operate and work, which are completely reductive and basic and wrong. But they don't matter so much to how these companies actually sell their products, because what they often do is they say, it may not work now, but in five to 10 years, it will, and it's going to be really, really effective. So they'll sell you the snake oil on Assumptions around, you know, how, oh, when you pair it with generative AI, it'll be able to construct some of the missing data sets and then be able to tell you exactly who this person is and what they're thinking. Um, it'll be able to, you know, fly to the moon and come back again, like all sorts of weird um, anecdotes and scenarios that probably will never be actualized. But the ideas around which and with paired with some former contracts would say like high profile law enforcement agencies, you'll be able to sell quite a few of these tools, even if they'll never be able to perform what you'll want it to perform. And that's how you end up with, say, situations in which law enforcement agencies are working on, you know, on a trial or on nearly free basis uh, of certain facial, recogn uh, facial recognition technology tools uh, that they just apply sort of roguely to say footage from a shoplifter and then end up at the home of Robert Williams in Detroit, arresting him because he vaguely looked black. And, you know, on the CCTV footage, I guess there was no distinction that the algorithm could make between the actual uh, uh, suspect and, and Robert Williams, um, which is incredibly, of course, dis disheartening knowing that, um, uh, the black community and, and black and brown community members at large in the United States have to live uh, uh, with fear that police forces may just roguely start running footage through an algorithm that maybe flags them for something and for having been somewhere that they've never been and for doing something they've never done. Um, 
but like let's consider the scenario under which like the facial recognition tools do work since so let's say they're 99% accurate and let's say they don't do all the gender recognition stuff but they just recognize people who have profile somewhere and can give you a name and can say who they are and vaguely where they're from. Um, even in those scenarios, the technology is still, it still needs to scrape your data um, at a scale that has to be quite massive, usually from places that are rife with facial images, so social media, which will require doing so without your knowledge and consent. One, one famed example that have been, that has been referenced a lot in the media is of course, Clearview AI. Um, who has now been fined by multiple information commissioners' offices and 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 ombudsman because of the rampant um, data scraping practices that it needed to do in order to functionalize its its algorithm in the first place. So you end up in a scenario in which you know your right to privacy is at severe risk. You end up in a scenario in which, of course, these technologies can be used as a cost-effective measure, quote unquote, by police forces uh, to ensure safety, but at the cost of your fundamental rights. So the question is, uh, do we have these technologies not work, but harm the most targeted communities? Or do we have them work and get better at targeting the most targeted communities? Because again, as the data will show you, as our research has shown us in, for example, New York City, communities in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, that have a greater proportion of black and brown community members are also of higher risk of being exposed to facial recognition. So you make that facial recognition better and you just make it better at targeting those same communities, which is just a reinforcement of the fact that the world is operating under conditions of racial capitalism. Uh, people that are more likely to be structurally targeted uh, by policing are also going to be more targeted by facial recognition. So we shouldn't make it any easier for that to take place. Yeah, it seems like no win scenario. Um, I wonder, so I wanna go back to the role of companies uh, because that seems really critical. I mean, we're talking about Clearview AI and it seems like there's that nexus between companies that sell to state security forces, you know, transnationally, internationally. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the companies that you, because they're, one of them's Dutch, I think. I can't remember um, where the other one is. Um, and their role in developing these facial recognition and CCTV technologies, um, what's kind of happening in their home states in terms of, um, is there any regulation around them are, are the states at all upset that they did this or are they just thrilled that this is more kind of commerce um and whether they whether they're deploying you know whether we're seeing this internationally and if there's similar systems um because i was thinking uh, you know we've we've talked a little bit about the potential for this to happen and to expand in in the uk and in some ways already is in the us um, but i was also thinking a bit about the uh, china's system um for recognizing its muslim population which seems to kind of have a, quite a lot of similarity so are these are these systems similar and what are the links between um the companies who might be exporting the tech so i'll start with tk security which is a company that's again domiciled in the Netherlands. Netherlands has come under fire recently for having deployed uh, an algorithm uh, for uh, it's 
sort of child benefit fraud detection in which it turned out that that algorithm was simply identifying dual citizenship as a variable for fraud and deceit. And so started uh, basically rampantly punishing people for for being brown, um, as it were, for not being from the well from from being from the Netherlands and from having additional citizenship, but but largely speaking, when when we when Amnesty and other organizations looked at the data, it was clear that ethnic minorities were targeted by that that algorithm. And so we're dealing with a country that's eerily aware to the point where the government came to a standstill, and there was you know of course a, a new government as a result of some of the, the 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 fiasco or some of the I should say scandal that that emerged from that algorithm. Um, and so it's really it's really quite instructive that this country in particular has no business uh, uh, enabling the usage of AI tools um, that enable human rights abuses, you know, not at home and not abroad. And TH Security, a company that has yet to respond to these findings other than uh, sort of regurgitating a four line message in which they claim to not have had any um, dealings with their Israeli distributor for the last year or so uh, completely fails in laying out why they entered the agreement in the first place, what they're doing in the country, uh, how they're mitigating the risk of being complicit in apartheid, uh, none of that. And, and it's really clear to contextualize this within the debate of the EU AI Act. One particular proposal that currently is with the parliament is the proposal to ban uh, the exports of any technology that is banned uh, within the context of the EU AI Act. So say if facial recognition, if retrospective facial recognition is banned under the EU AI Act, then with this new proposal, it would mean that it also couldn't be exported. Now, of course, the EU AI Act is just moving into what's called the trilogs phase, where the commission, the council and the parliament have to land at a consensus. Um, but uh, it's a really pivotal point uh, to make clear that retrospective facial recognition, which is the type of facial recognition we're seeing enabled and used in the context of the occupied Palestinian territories, has to be banned because if it isn't, then it can be exported and then it can support these human rights violations. Um, so again, the Netherlands in particular, I think eyes are on them from our perspective uh, as far as where they will land on the EUAI Act and indeed whether they will put in any heightened due diligence processes around exports of these technologies. Then there is a context of high vision uh, on, and, and China. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have the liberty of uh, speaking of amnesties online on the use of the technology in the context of the persecuted Uyghur Muslim minorities uh, in China. And that's predominantly because Amnesty can only speak about the research that we publish. And we haven't yet published research on this. But I will say that there is plenty of documentation out there, of course, of how social scoring systems and facial recognition with race detection capabilities, allegedly, are being deployed on Uyghur Muslim minority community members on how they're potentially being deployed uh, towards the end of interning people, places like Xinjiang. Um, and we also know that 
Hike Vision is a mass producer of cameras that are as readily available in the context of China as they are outside. Uh, and that should warrant quite considerable concern. Um, in fact, Big Brother Watch also recently released a report in which they laid out how much of a growing market Hike Vision was finding in the UK. So even if you look around the streets of Cambridge, I've been told, you'll be able to find that quite a few of those cameras are in fact um, produced by Hike Vision. Um, so whilst I can't speculate as to the nature of what's happening between Hike Vision and the oppression of Uyghur Muslim minorities in China, because I can't ascertain that link, uh, what I can say is that it's a growing, unchecked company who certainly has products within the occupied Palestinian territories that are being used uh, to enable apartheid um, and who needs to be checked and who needs to be stopped. I want to ask, so you you highlighted in the report and kind of as you're speaking, some ways in which the kind of international or legal context um, that these systems were harming the right to privacy. You've kind of uh, um, suggested that you think facial recognition tech uh, and these systems should be regulated and perhaps even banned. So I wonder for you, um, what is it, What what where where is it that you see kind of um, resistance to these systems? Should facial recognition, should surveillance be banned? And if so, kind of at what level? I mean, you mentioned the EU, but at what level is is um, that kind of regulation or even kind of a grassroots resistance uh, possible? Yeah, I mean, so again, let's let's not forget the Palestinians themselves are resisting these technologies. Um, they're burning down surveillance towers. Uh, they're resisting the occupation and annexation and apartheid where they can. And they're still going out and protesting, right? Even though there's a heightened calculus of risk that they have to keep in mind as they're doing it. And that itself is... It's hugely important to not invisibilize and, and to make sure that that we all appreciate that nobody wants these systems other than Israeli authorities in place. Then there's, of course, like what's happening at the regulatory um, level. Uh, in the EU, we're seeing a landmark um, artificial intelligence um, act uh, being, you know, coming to to effectively its conclusory states uh, stages. Um, the debate right now is around whether retrospective remote biometric identification, i.e. what facial recognition, what retrospective facial recognition would fall under, should remain in the category of high risk or should be fully prohibited. So live facial recognition is currently under the fully prohibited list. Um, somehow the European Commission is con convinced that the temporal um, lag of retrospective facial recognition makes it less prone to the fundamental human rights questions and violations that are at the core of live facial recognition, which I personally believe is a complete technical misunderstanding and perhaps a wee bit of willful ignorance, but we won't get into that right now. Um, and so I guess the fight there is to ensure that all forms of remote biometric identification are included in the prohibited list. Should it do that, we will have one of the most unprecedented progressive regulations that could see the ban uh, on these technologies significantly stifle the, the market and maybe even have reverberating impacts elsewhere. Um, especially if this proposal to ban exports on anything that's banned within the EU market uh, also comes into place. Uh, there are, of course, 
elsewhere, we've seen the fight be taken up at the city level. Um, we know that facial recognition in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in particular was banned in places like Somerville, in Massachusetts, in, in Portland, Oregon. Um, and we've just recently, in early May, in fact, seen the introduction of one out of three bills uh, to ban facial recognition in New York at the city level, at the city council, where we're awaiting, uh, awaiting a decision. And so, you know, people are taking the fight to their local cities as well, which I think matters profoundly, especially because oftentimes we've seen the narrative of the fight against facial recognition bear the most amount of fruit when it's couched within the narrative and the reality of the oppressive systems that is reproducing, right? So it's not really a fight against facial recognition. It's a fight for racial justice, which can't exist. And so, you know, as, as long as we have these systems being, being put into place and being used, as long as we equip the forces that enable the reproduction of the system to have the tools to scale the violence, right? So that goes for police forces in the United States as much as it goes for Israeli security forces that are also using similar technologies to oppress Palestinians. And so it's been really quite heartening to see how that local fight and that local struggle has continued to, to advance this. And then there are groups like No Tech for Apartheid, which are you know groups of whistleblowers that came out of the Google Nimbus project and started whistleblowing on a big cloud um, AI ML uh, uh, environment that was enabling the scaling of AI processing that could, in theory, be used for things like facial recognition, um, which was explicitly geared for, for Israeli security. Um, and coming out and saying, we can't work on this, this is unconscionable, and in fact, revealing a lot of how those systems operate to a point of potentially creating a bit of a repugnant or non-permissible market, or at least creating distaste around it. I don't think we should diminish the power of distaste um, in this, especially when we're dealing with technologies that are so make-wish in the first place. Um, if the technologies themselves are so make-wish in the first place, then surely the tools to fight them can also be based in the realm of imagination to some extent, right? Which is to say, these things don't work. So why should we imagine a possibility in which they do? Why not reveal how they don't or the kinds of violence they might lead to and you know, foreclose the possibility of them ever being deployed? Yeah, that's so fantastic. It's very rare that you get kind of almost good news about the potentials for um, resisting these things. So it's really nice to see at how at different levels um, think things are are moving along in ways that seem really promising and progressive. Um, even as, you know, this this horrible situation is is um continuing. I wonder, um, just as a sort of final wrap-up question for you, um, have you seen any kind of impact um of your report? Has there been any kind of response? And and what are you thinking about um uh continuing and and, and what is kind of most important to you prioritizing as you continue to do this this either the specific or this this kind of research so i've seen obviously it was very very heartening to see how well covered and sympathetically covered i'd say in the in the media it was which is surprising given the general i won't say conservatism but perhaps um 
perhaps conservatism after all that surrounds the issue of apartheid in the in the OPT. Uh, certainly, I know Amnesty was faced with quite a bit of a, a difficult media terrain when when we released our first report that called the situation apartheid. Um, but this time around, it was simply taken for a fact, and the ways in which the technology was enabling it uh, was was explored in depth. And what's been particularly promising to me has been how supporters themselves have come out and and sort of spoken to us about how they found that knowing that they could sever, they could help sever the tie between a particular company and the exercise of apartheid would help weaken the system was the first time where they had some insight into what could actually be done about a situation as dire as that. I suppose one of the other things to come out of this is that we were able to engage in high-level talks. I don't know how much that 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 matters right now, but it will perhaps in future in rooms with members of European Parliament and European Commission uh, who previously would, would not um, in, have engaged on the topic of apartheid in the OPT, um, but who seem particularly alarmed uh, around how this especially sci-fi uh, scenario as, you know, as they were verbatim sort of perceiving it um, was creating particular cause for concern, which of course is slightly difficult to stomach uh, when, when we wake up to the reality of what's been happening over the last few days with the raids on Janine um, and, and the, frankly, the past many, many decades. Um, but, uh, but of course, if if the tech inroads is the way in which we start um, to have this conversation at foras and institutions that wouldn't otherwise be having it or that would shy away from the conversation, um, then that's, I think, a, a generally positive thing. Uh, my hopes is that we'll be able to create a non-permissive environment under which the state of the Netherlands, for example, as well as the parties that are negotiating on the EU AI Act would see it within reason to ban the export of technologies that can be used for apartheid to Israel um, and to seriously consider the harms that these systems are making, you know, on Palestinians, but also could be making on their own citizens as a basis for which they should be banning these tools. Um, and I see that happening. And I guess like one final, one final sort of positive outcome of the report again has been that people have been made aware of how facial recognition is not just something that's all around you and that you should just accept because it's ephemeral and it's and it's ubiquitous and it doesn't affect you immediately, maybe as a middle class white person who it's going about your everyday life, um, but actually understanding the kinds of extremes that they can be taken to. Um, and, and again, we have, we have heard feedback that, that there is some awareness around that now. And this was not a scenario that people had imagined that that creates, again, distaste, which I think is, is super powerful in the context of tech.